light of infinite. There's one kind of religious thought which now feels antiquated, that teaches that a person should never fall into sin, and that only in the pure state can they reach unification with the divine and all the blessings that come with it. Rabbi Nachman of Breslov was controversial in his time, and had many that rallied against him, because he shined a light on the profound spiritual elevation one could reach because of their fallen moment. We see throughout the Torah, and especially through the temple sacrifices, that in a moment of sin, we have an opportunity to draw close to Hashem. This is why, when the temple was destroyed, the rabbis instituted the daily tefillah, the prayers, so that Jews would still have a way to elevate themselves, including in those fallen moments. In the Talmud and Zohar, prayer is called requesting mercy. The Mittler Rebbe, Dov Ber, teaches that requesting mercy is a general and inclusive matter, broader than a set prayer time. And at any moment that we face misfortune, we can request mercy of Hashem. The Talmud states that the laws of the prayer of the Amidah, also called Shemana the silent 18 prayers that we say daily, are derived from Chana, who was embittered in her soul and prayed to Hashem and wept and cried. When she reached a profound level of humility and loneliness and embittered spirit, she prayed to Hashem and requested mercy. This is the mindful and all-encompassing state of humility that one must develop to unify with the Divine. As it's written, I poured out my soul before Hashem. This is why prayer is called the outpouring of the soul. Rabbi Nachman teaches that we may feel far from Hashem at times because of our past transgressions, but it is then that we must remember that there cannot be a perfect prayer without us even when in those moments of despair. And as we learn in the Talmud that every prayer that does not include a sinner of Israel is not a complete prayer. We see this in the recipe of the temple incense, the Ketoret. Among the 11 spices used, there was one very foul-smelling ingredient known as the Galbanum, the Chilbana spice. Our sages explained that the Galbanum had a very foul odor on its own. But when it was included amongst the other 10 ingredients, the fragrance transformed into something very pleasant in the context of the other 10 spices. It's one of the transcendent secrets of the temple incense. Tefillah prayer is our modern day offering to our creator. And just as the incense offering was not complete without the Galbanum, if we are burdened with our transgressions, we have to know that prayer service cannot be complete without us as we are. And it's in this moment that we must flip our transgressions into merits, praying to God for His unlimited mercy with heartfelt love and fear of Hashem. Saying to oneself, as Rabbi Nachman teaches, just as the foul-smelling galbanum is an essential ingredient in the sweet-smelling incense offering, my tainted prayer is a vital ingredient in the prayer of all of Israel. Without my presence and prayer in the minyan, the prayer is deficient, just like the incense without the galbanum. And in those times, we have to meditate on the thought, I am the perfection of the prayer, the galbanum in the incense. Hashem created twin pathways, tshuva and shabbat, repentance and the Sabbath before even creating the world. And these were the first commandments we were given after Hashem took us out of Egypt, which He was essentially waiting to give us. Tshuva is reached through sacrifice and prayer, through the power of speech channeled into elevating the fallen sparks of creation. Similarly, Shabbat has the power to elevate the mundane physical into a supernal spiritual state. In fact, all of the blessings we say during the week are derived from those that we say on Shabbat. Shabbat is the only specifically Jewish ritual mentioned in the Ten Commandments, and the one commandment mentioned in the Torah more than any other. And again, this week we are commanded to keep the Shabbat. There's no more elevated bridge between this and the next world. It's a moment in our finite time and space when our soul feels tapped into the infinite. We read, Hashem said to Moshe, saying, And you speak to the children of Israel, saying, Just observe my Sabbaths, for it is a sign between me and you for your generations to know that I am Hashem who sanctifies you. And Rashi adds, And although I charge you to command them concerning the work of the Mishkan, do not view things so lightly as to push aside Shabbat because of that work. Shabbat is referred to here as Shabbat Shabbaton, 
the repetitive term indicating the importance and the deep rest we are meant to take on Shabbat. The Hebrew word nofesh, resting, is related to nefesh, spirit. So the rest of Shabbat is not about sleeping or lying around, but tending to the spirit, bringing stillness and peace to it. The unification of soul and body, of infinite and finite, is achieved in returning the fallen sparks and elevating them to their source, to the light of the infinite. The Kabbalah teachings around this Parsha dive deep into anger, repentance, and redemption through the permutations of Hashem's name. Hashem literally means the name, and it's a euphemism for the Tetragrammaton, the Yudke Vavke, which is never spoken as it appears in the Torah. The permutations of Hashem's name give us clues into the understanding of the aspects of God that are generally concealed. Before jumping into the first verse from our Parsha about Pinchas, understanding a couple of verses from Shemot is key. One being, I will be who I will be. This is what Hashem said to Moshe and explained, and this is what you must say to the Israelites, I will be sent me to you. The next verse, I will take to you myself as a nation and I will be to you as a God. You will know that I am God your Lord, the one who is bringing you out of under the Egyptian subjugation. Here we see the various permutations of Hashem's name and the power that each contain within it. The one name that we don't speak out loud, also known as the Havaya, is Kulo Chesed, full of kindness. The second name, Elohim, is Gevura, strength, judgment. And the name Ehiyeh is the mediator between those two. This is why Hashem commands Moshe to tell the children of Israel that Ehiyeh has sent him, the God that balances strength and kindness, judgment and mercy. Sforno explains that Ehiyeh, Asher Ehiyeh, was how Israel understood Moshe as saying that Hashem has a completely independent existence from ours. Sforno explains that Ehiyeh, Asher Ehiyeh, was how Israel understood Moshe as saying that Hashem has a completely independent existence from ours, not subject to the cause and effect reality that we live in. The understanding is that Hashem loves existence and all the beings that exist and anything or anyone that counters existence is going against Hashem. This is why Hashem says that through the prophet Ezekiel, I do not desire the death of him that dies. It's clear that Hashem loves righteousness and justice and the objective of both being the continued existence of all who deserve it. On the other end of this, God also hates injustice and cruelty, the vices that destroy the existence of the victims of these vices. And so Hashem must hate the violence and cruelty perpetuated on Israel by the Egyptians. The children of Israel's freedom from Egypt and redemption into the Promised Land is our story that we are commanded to say every year at the Pesach Seder. But it's also the story each person struggles with throughout life, our struggle to free ourselves from elements of our own slavery and constriction, and to bring ourselves to a state of redemption, our own promised land of freedom. Further in Shemot, Hashem uses both his names, Havayah, the one associated with Chesed, and Elohim, the one associated with Gevura, judgment. Directly after using those names, Hashem says, And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who freed you from the labors of the Egyptians. Rabbi Nachman explains that these two psukim, these verses, are the secret of personal redemption, as the combination of chesed, loving-kindness, and givura, judgment, is how one attains dot, ultimate knowledge, wisdom. Loving-kindness or judgment by itself is incomplete. Balance, knowing when to use each trait, is key. Tempering one with the other and the ability to know when to use each characteristic, that is dot. In the Talmud it says, a person should always draw closer by means of the right hand and push them aside with his left hand. In the 10 Sfirot, God's right hand represents Chesed, and his left hand is Gevura. In our relationship with each other, our emphasis should be on drawing people and friendship closer with Chesed, but also pushing away in a sense the Gevura so that each person remains an autonomous individual. A constant balance must be at play. With someone who is independent, show them that love creates bonds. But with someone who is dependent, show love with restraint, maintaining healthy boundaries in the relationship. There are two ways in which to use your right and left hand. 
One would be placing both of them on something, say pushing something up a hill, in which both act as one in a way that neither could do alone. The other would be when one dominant hand hammers in a nail or chisels out a stone with the less dominant hand holds the nail or stone in place. The other would be when the dominant hand is hammering something or chiseling a stone while the less dominant hand holds the nail or stone in place. This is the way in which Chesed and Gevura could act simultaneously towards the same goal, exerting force in opposite but complementary directions. Hashem's main purpose in the creation of the world is Chesed, but without Gevura, we would be robots or slaves. The relationship we have is not that of master and slave, it's of parent and child. We are meant by our own free will to serve Hashem, much like a child who wants to give or to help their parent. Imagine a parent carrying a bunch of things in their hands, and a small child asked to hold one little thing. That won't really have an effect. In fact, it might make it even harder for the parent to stop and rearrange what they're holding. The child knows that it isn't a big help, but it's a show of love. That's the sort of relationship we should have with Hashem. There are two acts that we actually complete for Hashem. One is giving to the poor. We went over this about Hashem's love for the poor. In fact, the poor's temple sacrifice, though much more insignificant in size or amount, are loved by Hashem to a greater degree. So we might ask, why are the poor not taken care of in this world if Hashem loves them in this way? The reason is that it's our job to partner with Hashem and to fulfill the mitzvah of making sure they are taken care of. It's similar with the Brit Milah, the circumcision, Avram's original covenant with Hashem. One can ask, if it's a sign of our covenant with Hashem, then why wouldn't we be born with it? The answer is because it's our job to take on a physical action and create that covenant, a partnership literally seen on the body that we have taken part in and taken personal action towards. Guarding this covenant that we have with our Creator, constantly striving to overcome our physicality is a perpetual struggle. But the ups and downs, and learning that dance while staying hopeful and connected, even in despair, is the key to eventual redemption. Prior to repentance, a person is said to be in a state of ehiyeh, as in, Ehiyeh asher ehiyeh from the verse above. Ehiyeh is the permutation of Hashem's name that is correlated to Gvura when written as Aleph He Yud He. Ehiyeh means to wait. It's a pause in a moment, a preparation of being, but not yet an attained state of being. When someone wants to convert to Judaism, we are taught to push them away as if to say, not yet, take a pause, be sure it's what you want and it's what you would die for and then try again. It's the same with drawing close to Hashem. You'll find stumbling blocks. You'll find yourself being pushed down the ladder time and again. But as you fight to climb up, you get closer in a real and deep sense. Rabbi Nachman teaches that embarrassment is the essence of repentance. And Rabbi Natan goes on further, pointing out that under Egyptian bondage, the Jews were not yet a nation. To acquire being, they had to first experience the embarrassment of bondage and bear it in silence, the stage of Ehyeh. And only then could they acquire Havaya as a nation, the stage of Yudke Vavke. The Tetragrammaton, the Yudke Vavke, is the name of God which denotes the level at which past, Hayah, present, Hoveh, and future, Yehiyeh, are one. This name also denotes the creative power that constantly sustains the universe. Now we could jump into the first verse of this parsha, which reads, God spoke to Moshe, saying, Pinchas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron the priest, has turned back my anger against the children of Israel by avenging my vengeance against them. I therefore did not destroy the children of Israel in my vengeance. It said the justice of man is harsher than that of heaven. Therefore, when Pinchas pursued Zimri, the divine judgments ceased, not only against Zimri, who instigated evil, but against all the Jews who had sinned. Rashi explains that since the Torah never repeats itself unnecessarily, when it says that Pinchas is the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, it must be to emphasize something, since it has already established this lineage. So Rashi says that Pinchas is clearly tied to two priests, especially Aaron, to ensure that his behavior is seen from a place of righteousness, that his intention was to create peace. 
Had the verse not connected him to Aaron, one could connect him to his father-in-law Yitro and argue that the act was not inspired by righteousness for the sake of heaven, but his own selfish wrath rooted in idolatry, which is part of his ancestry. Rashi articulates that because the tribes of Israel ridiculed Pinchas saying, have you seen the descendants of Yitro, whose mother's father fattened calves for idol worship, and yet he killed a leader of one of the tribes of Israel? So that this would not be given any air of truth, the verse repeatedly and explicitly traces his lineage to Aaron the priest. The Kliyakar points out in this verse, it says, he zealously took up my cause among them, emphasizing among them, so that it's known that he did his deeds among Zimri's tribesmen and relatives, and that this act was one that put him at great danger. Pinchas proved in this courageous moment that he was acting for the sake of Torah and the Jewish people and had no other interest in mind. Only for this truth was Pinchas celebrated. But the Kutzker Rebbe points out that despite that, he was still invalidated from being a leader of the Jewish people, which Moshe had initially wanted. When Moshe saw Pinchas's zealotry, he knew that while Pinchas was holier than others, he lacked the traits required to be a leader someone who must conduct themselves with moderation and flexibility. So his act led to Yoshua becoming Moshe's successor. The Arizo points out that the term vengeance is mentioned three times in the verse about Pinchas, and that the numerical value of the root of this word that's spelled out Kuf Nun Aleph is 151 and is derived in three ways. First, the numerical value of the divine name Ehiyeh, when spelled out using the letter He, is 151. Second, the numerical value of the name Ehiyeh individually squared is also 151. And third, the combined numerical values of the names Elohim and Adni are 151. Ehiyeh, Aleph, He, Yud, He, when spelled out, is symbolic of the fulfillment of latent potential. When you square the name to get 151, it looks like Aleph, He, Yud, He, which is 12 plus 52 plus 102 plus 52, which equals 1 plus 25 plus 100 plus 25, which is 151. Rav Moshe Wisniewski expounds on the second permutation of Hashem's name and its numerical correlation to the vengeance in the Pasuk, explaining that the squaring technique is called ribui prati, individual squaring, meaning summing the square of each letter that make up the word. Squaring signifies maturation and development because squaring a number makes that number interincluded with all its constituent units. An interinclusion is the characteristic of maturity, to see all sides of an issue and grant validity to other people. In Kabbalah, the maturation of the sphero from individual points into parts of theme, the personas or the faces or forms, is the process which marks the transition from the chaotic, unstable world of tohu to the rectified world of tikkun, which is done by tracing it all back to its original source. The last of the three are the combination of the names Elohim and Adni. To break down the gematria, the numerical value we have Elohim, which is Aleph, 1, Lamed, 30, He, 5, Yud, 10, Mem, 40, and Adni, Aleph, 1, Dalid, 4, Nun, 50, and Yud, 10, which is 65 plus 86, which also equals 151. Elohim signifies Hashem's attribute of judgment and severity, while the name Adni signifies his attribute of authority and dominion, Adon meaning master or ruler, Adonai means master. The two names signify two types of courts. Elohim is that of strict judgment and is associated with the sphera of Kavura, and Adni correlates with lenient judgment associated with the sphera of Malchut. When these two divine attributes are combined, it can produce anger. And so the rectification of anger involves tracing these two attributes in the soul, ridding them of the shell of anger in order to reveal the goodness of the soul. In other words, being judgmental, acting like a court, is the source of anger, and the lesson of Azamra the core of Breslov teaching is to rectify judgment by finding the good point in yourself and others and to judge it favorably. 
bringing merit to yourself and others. As we covered in the past in How to Never Get Angry, even though there's no explicit prohibition against anger in the Torah, it's considered one of the worst sins, which our sages compare to idolatry. If one's emunah, faith, and pitachon trust are strong, a person will realize that all is for the good, that there's no reason to get angry. Angry signifies that a person believes that they know better than Hashem, which is likened to idolatry. Judgment isn't intrinsically negative, as it's needed in order to discern between good and bad decisions, but when judgment takes over a person, that's when it becomes a negative force, eventually resulting in anger and violence. That's why we meditate on the names and use our speech to moderate and mitigate judgment with mercy. Some people associate God with high holidays or synagogue, but the deepest connection and feeling of closeness to the infinite light are in the moments of despair. Riding the waves of life, the ups and downs, navigating one's own fortress of solitude and the judgment that one has of others and of themselves. As it's written, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. All faith stems from trust that not only are we not alone, but that all is for the good. Even though it may not be revealed as good in those moments, God will continue to lift us when we fall and forgive us when we fail. It's hard to understand the chiyut, the life that we give each other, simply by showing each other authentic positivity. Rabbi Nachman teaches that a person must judge everyone favorably. Even if someone's completely bad, it's necessary to search and find in them some modicum of good, the little bit that is not wicked, and find in them a drop of good and judge them favorably. And by finding the drop of good and judging them favorably, we bring them to return to the true path of their Jewish soul. The through line of the previous parshiot is that our service of Hashem, especially the sacrifices, should be done with a generous heart. Service of the heart is also the through line of Tehillim, the Psalms. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The sacrifice of God is a broken heart. Broken and contrite heart, you, God, will not despise. God heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Rabbeinu continues and explains, a person needs to cry to his Father in heaven with a powerful voice from the depths of his heart. Then God will listen to his voice and turn to his cry. And it may be that from this very act, all doubts and obstacles that are keeping him back from the true service of Hashem will fall from him and be completely nullified. One of the central lessons of Likutei Maran is the Zamra, confronting these dinim, these judgments that you fall into, and working to sweeten them with Hashem's name, elevating the fallen sparks. It's not something that you learn once and you do once and master. It's done over time, as lasting and true change happens layer by layer. And as Rabbeinu says, a little bit is also good. The way to grow is not to worry about perfection. Simply start moving a little bit beyond where you were a moment ago. We are meant to emulate Hashem, who mitigates his judgments and applies mercy as often as he can. It is the only way to continue to get back up when we fall, to show ourselves and others mercy. And it is this choice of mercy, using the right hand of chesed, that elevates us to Hashem. Confucius must have been in Uman around the time Reb Nachman was, because he said, Our greatest glory is not in never falling, but in rising every time we fall. Dive in deeper at lightofinfinite.com.